One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at turmoil in Saudi Arabia and in the wider neighbourhood. Some of the most powerful people in the Gulf Kingdom are now under arrest. And meanwhile, tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran are rippling right across the Middle East. Joining me on the line is our Gulf Affairs correspondent, Simeon Kerr, and in Beirut, our correspondent there, Erica Solomon. Simeon, first, tell me about these arrests. What's going on? Uh, Why have they done it? Well, it's um, you know it, it has got everyone scratching their heads. It's been it is uh, clearly you know one of the uh, deepest, most uh, unprecedented corruption crack, crackdowns we've seen in the Gulf, and certainly certainly in Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, you know it's the, it, you know the young crown prince Mohammed bin Salman has um, you know he's ticking off a few boxes here. Uh, he's uh, you know he has spent the last few years consolidating his power to a point where he really is, you know, his father's hand. He, he does, he, you know, he, he rules uh, all uh, leave, uh, aspects of, of, of the kingdom at the moment. And he's trying to sort of reformulate the way that business is done in Saudi Arabia in his own image. So yeah, going after uh, corruption is uh, going to be sick. He's, high, he's very, very popular amongst the youth and, and amongst the middle classes in the kingdom who've for many decades seen uh, elites uh, and princes uh, uh, feathering their own nests. As the, the crown prince introduces, you know, economic reforms, he wants to, he, he's trying to show everyone that they're all in the same boat to a certain extent. But I mean, that's, that, that, that's the sort of political angle. At the same time, you know, there has been a lot of uh, criticism or quiet criticism within the family of what he's doing. And this is a way of, you know, sending a message uh, within the family that you know, no dissent will be brooked and that they, they need to get on board with what he's doing. Uh, and uh, so so that's so the you know dozens, maybe hundreds of people uh, detained is certainly sending that message loud and clear and everyone's noticing. Is there a political risk attached there? Because it seems to me he's taking on some of the richest, most powerful people in Saudi Arabia, caught up in the sweeper, Prince Al-Walid, who's probably the most well-known Saudi businessman, a, a billionaire, uh, and, and prominent members of the royal family. Um, it's it's quite a high-stakes thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, th- th- there is some political risk here. I think it probably illustrates the extent to which he feels that he's got a handle on the kingdom, that he can do it at this moment. I mean, at the, at the same time, as he launched the crackdown, he uh, removed uh, the son of the former king, Mitib, from the National Guard, which is a very powerful sort of elite paramilitary security force in the kingdom. So, uh, And that has for, for decades been loyal to, to, to King Abdullah and, and, and that branch of the family. So it, it's a risk, but uh, people say he, he will have been working on, on trying to sustain their loyalty and there are others in the family too who would be upset but I think he regards himself as you know his main asset is the youth you know he's a millennial and you know he's below the median age in Saudi Arabia uh, sorry above the median age in Saudi Arabia the youth are generally uh, generally with him and he will try to portray himself as the champion of this, this these new generations coming through and hoping that they will bolster what he wants to do. And just uh Essentially, what does he want to do? We talk about Mohammed bin Salman as this great reformer. Um, 
the elements are to, as I understand it, partly to make Saudi Arabia less in the grip of the uh, extreme form of Wahhabi Islam, but and also to open up the economy. Is is that basically it? Yes, I mean, he, he, I think he's recognised that that he needs to diversify the economy away from oil because the oil, you know, is not going to last forever. And to do that is a highly complicated cultural change that's needed. Uh, this is, you know, so the, this crackdown is this kind of cultural revolution around, you know, so trying to re- figure out the way things are done. It's not going to be patronage via princes. It's not going to be princes giving business to their own companies. Uh, it's not all going to be about government spending, it's, which has always been the, the way in the past that the oil revenues creep through, through the economy via via into, and then the private sector depends on that. So he's trying to completely revolutionise the way that business is done in the kingdom. Uh, now that means uh, that means that the normal Saudis are going to have a less of a, uh, a generous welfare state. And in order to um, get them on board, you know, he's not offering democracy, but he's offering sort of more social freedoms, just things like, you know, entertainment, malls, uh, you know, women are going to be able to drive from June. Uh, they, they're going to probably open cinemas at some stage. And these, this kind of opening up the tight social strictures is is where he hopes and probably will manage to buy him some time uh, as life gets more difficult as the given given the, the, the lack of economic largesse that, that Saudis are going to have over the next decade or so and of course Saudi Arabia the richest country in the region one of the most powerful and the ripples of the what's happening in Saudi Arabia affecting uh the whole Middle East now. And Erica, of course, where, where you're sitting, Lebanon has been particularly affected by Saudi policy decisions, it seems, with the prime minister stepping down. Can you explain what's happening there? Yeah, um, I think really, in a way, Lebanon has uh, been hostage to this whole um, sort of unraveling that's going on in the region as, as Saudi looks to escalate against Iran. Um, you know, you uh, the prime minister, if you think about it, he resigned, but here in Lebanon, like, most people don't really feel that he resigned. They feel that he was forced to um, during a visit to Saudi Arabia, which is where he resigned from, and where people still can't really get in touch with him. Um, it's, you know, there's an ongoing debate right now in Lebanon as to whether their former prime minister is even free if he's under the custody of Saudi authorities. So that's kind of a remarkable thing if you stop to think about that for a second. You are shocked by the resignation, uh, surprise resignation of your of your you know country's leader, and then maybe he's being held by force by another country. I mean, nobody knows, and that's the problem. So there's a lot of uncertainty here, but but broadly speaking, that's almost become like a side issue to a much graver threat, which is how seriously um, Saudi Arabia is going to start pushing um, against Iran diplomatically, politically, and, you know, economically. Um, uh, Beirut, of course, or Lebanon, I should say, is is home to the, to the regional force Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran and is seen as one of the main sort of proxies that Iran has. So it's really important in some ways for, for, for them to be reined in um, if you want to try and um, hit back at Iran, which is why now Lebanon went from being kind of ignored over the past few years of chaos in the Middle East between what's going on with ISIS, what's going on with the Syrian civil war, to now feeling like they're about to become um, you know, the center of, of a lot of uh, vexation now. So if the, the cause of Saudi anger at Lebanon is Hezbollah, 
how easy or otherwise would it be for them to take on Hezbollah, Baku, which are also, of course, traditionally enemies of Israel? Um, well, not easy. For, for one thing, Saudi Arabia has basically since 2011 um, been much less hands-on in Lebanon than it used to be. As I mentioned, there's been a lot of other conflicts in the region that have sort of taken priority away from Lebanon, which was often kind of seen as the place where the proxy wars of the region played out. Um, and so in that period, Hezbollah has sort of slowly but surely gained more and more um, power and influence in the country, um, not just through its uh, militant wing, um, but through its, its political wing. They have, a, they have members in parliament. They have ministers. Um, and so, you know, this is now a much more difficult issue. They're very much enmeshed um, in, in the country's military and political scene. And is it correct to see them essentially as a proxy for Iran? Yes and no. I, they are definitely see, for Iran. Surely sees them as like as a major element of their policy in the region. Um, and and so far, there doesn't seem to be much daylight between the two of them in terms of what their uh, what they see as regional objectives. But more and more, when you speak to Hezbollah people, you hear them sort of saying, "No, we're not. Uh, you know, we're not just their." you know, tool, we, we have our own views. And, and, and interestingly, Hezbollah itself is really becoming kind of its own brand. So it was before the conflict in Syria, when that started in 2011, Hezbollah very much seemed like a Lebanese movement. Now it seems to be kind of everywhere. Um, they, they're believed to have done training for Shia militias in Iraq. There's a lot of suspicion that they've played some kind of a role in Yemen, um, potentially doing training or maybe giving weapons to the Houthi militants in Yemen. So they've suddenly kind of become their own uh, regional force as well. Um, but so far, I don't see any way, any kind of rivalry or tension or even really any kind of gap in terms of um, the, the objectives of Iran or Hezbollah in the region. And Simeon, I mean, we have mention of Yemen there. And that, of course, is, if anything, even more likely to, to lead to a direct clash between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, with tensions again rising this week. Yes, indeed. I mean, the, the flashpoint this week was Saturday when <clears throat> Yemenis sent fired a ballistic missile which was intercepted near Riyadh airport, you know, that thousand kilometres. And, and that really sort of sharpened minds in Riyadh about the, the you know, the, the threat that they were facing after you know, they were in their third year of their intervention in Yemen, trying to restore the government that was ousted by Houthi rebels who are said to be allied to Iran. And, and you know, they, you know this this escalation that they saw of um, you know ballistic missiles raining down near their capital uh, has has set a lot of this in train. I mean, they presented evidence to the Americans and their allies and they, uh, about you know, claiming that these are Iranian missiles. They're claiming that Hezbollah and the Iranians have been involved with training and maybe even operating them. And they so they they they're classifying this as an act of war. Uh, now, in the last few days, the rhetoric was ramping up so. Uh, rapidly uh, amidst all this crackdown and uh, uh, another front that everyone got very nervous about the the prospect for you know either these proxy wars in in Yemen getting worse or even sort of tipping over into direct conflict between the two now it seems that the the Saudis are certainly going through the UN now they're going through their allies it, uh, uh, the, the the prospect of direct confrontation which was getting some people worried seems less likely but certainly uh, the, the conflict or the, the, the the way that the Saudis want uh, want to sort of stop uh, the Iranian uh, interference around the region and via, you know, Hezbollah means that they are going to be doubling down 
on uh, in these proxy conflicts, which means for places like Yemen, which have de- been devastated in the last few years, one can only assume that there could be uh, an increase. We've already, already seen more airstrikes, uh, and there's a potential for you know the stalemated ground uh, war to, to to pick up again. So that that seems to be the likely outcome on the, from the uh, from the Yemeni side of things. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. But thank you very much indeed to Simeon Kerr in the Gulf and to Erica Solomon in Lebanon. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.